0: Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations in industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is human first AI. Our guest is Christopher Wen, CEO and co founder of Adomatic. In this conversation, we talk about the why and the how of human-first AI, because it seems that digital AI is one thing, but physical AI is a whole another ball game in terms of finding enough high-quality data to label the data correctly. The fix is to use AI to augment existing workflows. We talk about fishermen at Foruno, human operators in battery factories at Panasonic, and energy optimization at Westinghouse. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and for shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trond Arne Unheim and presented by TULIP. Christopher, how are you and welcome?
1: Hi, Drant. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. I thought we would uh, jump into a pretty important uh, subject here on human-first AI, which uh, seems like a juxtaposition of two kind of uh, contradictory terms, but it might be one of the most important types of conversations that we are having these days. I want to introduce you quickly before we jump into this. So here's what I've understood, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but you are originally from Vietnam. This is back in the late 70s that you then arrived in the US and have spent many years in Silicon Valley, mostly Berkeley undergrad engineering, computer science, and then Stanford PhD in, in electrical engineering. You're sort of a combination, I guess, of a kind of a hacker professor builder, fairly typical uh, up until this point of a very successful, accomplished sort of Silicon Valley immigrant um, entrepreneur, I would say, right, and and technologist. Uh, And then I guess Google Apps is something to point out. You were one of the first engineering director and were part of uh, you know Gmail and Calendar and and a bunch of different apps there. But now you are the CEO and co-founder of Adomatic. What we are here to talk about is, I guess, what you have uh, learned in the kind of the last, uh, even just the last five years, which I'm thrilled to hear about. But m- let me ask you this first. What is the most sort of formational and formative experience that y- you've had in these, uh, in these years? So, you know, obviously immigrant background and then a lot of years in Silicon Valley. What does that give us? Uh, I, I guess I can draw
1: from a lot of events. I've always had mentors. You know, I, I can point out phases of my life and, and one particular name that was my mentor. But I guess my formative—I was kind of unlucky to be a refugee, but then lucky to to then end up in Silicon Valley at the very beginning of the PC revolution. And my first PC was a TI 99/4A that basically the whole household could could afford, right? And I picked it up, and I have not stopped hacking ever since. So I, I've been at this a very long time.
0: So you've been at this, which is good, because uh actually good hacking turns out it takes a while, but uh, there's more than that, right? So tell us what the story of the last five years, that's interesting to me, because a lot of people learn, or at least think they learn most things early. And you're saying you have learned some really fundamental things in the last five years. And this has to do with Silicon Valley and its potential blindness to certain things. Can you line that up for us? What is it that Silicon Valley does really well, and what is it that
1: you have discovered that might be an opportunity to improve upon? Well, I learn new things every four or five years. I actually like to say that every four or five years, I look back and I said, I was so stupid five years ago. and (laughs) So that's that's been the case. That's a very humbling, but perhaps a very smart knowledge acquisition strategy, right? Yeah. And in the most recent five years, so before co-founding Itomatic, which is my latest project, and really with the same team. And I can talk a lot more about that. We've worked with each other for about 10 years now. But in the intervening time, there's a four and a half year block when we were part of Panasonic. So we had a company called Arimo that was acquired by Panasonic for our machine learning AI skills and software. And I would say, you know, if you look at my entire history, even though I, I did start with my degrees in semiconductor, you know, all the way down to device physics and Intel and so on. But in terms of professional working career, that was the first time we actually faced the physical world as a Silicon Valley team. And anybody who's observed Silicon Valley in the last 15, 20 years, certainly 10 years, has seen a, a marked change in terms of the shift from hardware to software, right? Um, I my friend Mark in recent likes to say software is eating the world. If you look at the, the education, you know, the degrees people are getting, it's shifted entirely from engineering all the way to computer science. And the punchline, I guess, the observation is that we Silicon Valley people do not get physical. We, we, we don't understand the manufacturing world. We don't know how to do HVAC and so on. And so when we build software, we tend to go for the, the, the digital stuff.
0: Christopher, it's almost surprising given the initial thrust of Silicon Valley was, of course, hardware. So it's, it's not surprising to me, I guess, because I've been observing it as well, but it is striking more than surprising that, you know, a region goes through, I guess, paradigms.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a global trend, right? It's the offshoring of low end, shall we say, low value manufacturing and so on. And we're discovering that we, we actually went a little too far, right? So we don't have the skill set, the expertise anymore. And it's become a, a geopolitical risk.
0: Right. Well, a little bit uh, too far, maybe, maybe, or not far enough. Or, uh, I mean, tell us what it is that you're losing when you lose the hardware perspective, particularly in this day and age with the opportunities that we're about to talk about.
1: Well, I can talk specifically about the things that touch my immediate spheres, right? Uh, I mean, you you can think abstractly about the lack of tooling expertise and and manufacturing know-how and so on. Mm -hmm. But as part of Panasonic... The acquisition was all about taking a Silicon Valley team and and injecting AI, right, machine learning across the enterprise. And so we were part of that global AI team reporting into the, the CTO office. And we found out very quickly that a lot of the software techniques, the machine learning, for example, when you think about people saying data is the food, right, the fuel for machine learning and specifically labeled data, right? In the digital world, at the Google place that I came from, it's very easy to launch a digital experiment and collect labels, decisions made by users. You can launch that in the morning. By evening, you've got a billion examples. You can't do that in the physical world. Atoms move a lot more slowly. And so when you try to do something like predictive maintenance, you don't have enough failure examples to train machine learning models from. So all of the techniques right? All the the algorithms that we say, you know, we develop for machine learning that seem to work so well. It turns out it works so well because the problem space that we worked on has been entirely digital and they all fail when it comes to manufacturing, the things that you can touch and feel, you know, cars that move and so on.
0: I want to ask you this, Christopher, because the first company you helped co-found was in fact a contract manufacturer. Do you think that sort of reflecting on this long career of yours and these sort of various uh, experiences, what was it that convinced you before others? I mean, you're not the only one now in the valley that has started to focus on manufacturing and including hardware again, but it is rare still. What does it require to not just sort of think about manufacturing, but actually start to do Compute for manufacturing is it just a matter of coming up with techniques, or is it a whole kind of awareness that takes longer? So, in your case, you you know you've been aware of manufacturing, acutely aware of it for decades.
1: I would say there are two things. One is obvious; the other was actually surprising to me. The obvious one is, of course, knowledge and experience. When we work on sonar technology that shoots a beam down and the echogram that comes back to detect fish in the ocean, it's very necessary not just convenient, but necessary for the engineers that work on that to understand the physics of sound wave travel underwater and so on. So that education, I have long debates, and it's not just recently, when we're trying to structure a syllabus for a new university. And I had long debates with my machine learning friends and they said, we don't need physics. And I said, we need physics, right? (laughs) That's one thing, uh, but you can sort of concretely identify, you need to know this, you need to know this. So if you're going to do this, learn the following thing. The thing that was more unexpected for me in the last five years, as I sort of sound this bell of saying, Hey, we need to modify our approach. We need to optimize our algorithms for this world is a cultural barrier, right? It's kind of like that story of, you know, if, if you have a hammer, you want to go look for nails. So Silicon Valley today does not want to look for screwdrivers yet. For, for this world.
0: So you're saying Silicon Valley has kind of canceled the physical world. If you want to be really sort of parabolic about this, you're, it's like software is eating the world, meaning software is what counts and it's so efficient. Why go outside this paradigm, basically? If there's a problem that apparently can't be fixed by software, it's not a valuable problem.
1: Or I can't solve that problem with my current approach. I just have to squint at it the right way. I have to tweak the problem this way and so on despite the fact that it's a sort of insurmountable problem, you know, challenge if you try to do so. And concretely, it is like, just give me enough data, I'll solve it. And if you don't have enough data, you know what? Go back and get more data. <laughs> That's what I myself literally said, right? But people don't have the luxury of going back to get more data. They have to go to market in six months and so on.
0: Right. Uh, so manufacturing, and I can think of many use cases where obviously failure, for example, is not something you you don't really want to go looking for more failure than you have or artificially create failure in order to stress test something, unless that's a, a very safe way of doing so. So predictive maintenance then seems like, a, I guess, a little bit of a safer space. But what is it about that particular problem that then lends itself to this other approach to Automating labeling, or you know, what exactly is it that you are advocating? One should do to bridge the digital and the
1: physical AIs. I actually disagree. That is a safer space. Oh, it's not a safer space to you. That itself, there's a story in that, right? So let let's break that down. Let's do it. So again, when I say Silicon Valley, it is a symbol for a larger ecosystem that is primarily software and digital. And when I say we, because I've worn many hats, I have multiple we's, right? Including academia, I've been a professor as well. When we approach the predictive maintenance problem, if you approach it as a machine learning, you know, say, do this with machine learning, the first thing you ask for, right, say, I'm a data scientist, I'm an AI engineer, you have this physical problem, it doesn't matter what it is, just give me the data set. And the data set must have, you know, rows and columns, and the rows are all the input variables, and then there should be some kind of column label. And in this case, it'll be A history of failures, of compressors failing, you know, if the variables are such, then it must be a compressor. If the variables are such, it must be was the the air filter and so on. And it turns out when you ask for that kind of data, you get 10 rows, right? That's not enough to do machine learning on. So then people, you know, machine learning folks who say they've done predictive maintenance, they actually have not done predictive maintenance. That's the twist. What they have done is anomaly detection, which machine learning can do, because with anomaly detection, I do not need that failure label. It just give me all the sensor data. What anomaly detection really does, is it, it learns the normal patterns, right? If you give it enough a year's worth of data, it'll say, okay, now I've seen a year's worth of data. If something comes along that is different from the past patterns, I will tell you that it's different. That's only halfway to predictive maintenance. That is detecting that something is different today. That is very different from, and it isn't, predicting, hey, that compressor is likely to fail about a month from now. And that, when we were part of Panasonic, it turns out the first way, and we solved it exactly the way I've described, we did it with the novel detection, and then we threw it over the wall. To whom? To the engineer experts and say, well, now that you have this alert, Go figure out what may be wrong. And half of the time they came back and said, oh, come on. It was just a maintenance event. Why, why are you bothering me with this?
0: But Christopher, leveraging human domain expertise sounds like a great idea, right? But it can't possibly be as scalable as just leveraging
1: software. So how do you work with that? And, and what are the gains that you're making? I can show you the messenger exchange I had with another machine learning friend of mine who said exactly the same thing yesterday, less than 24 hours ago. He said, that's too labor intensive. I, mean, I can show you the screen. And how do you disprove this? Well, <laughs> it's not so much disproving, but the assumption right, that involving humans you know, is labor intensive is only true if you can't automate it. Right? Right. So, so the key is figure out a way. And 10, 20 years ago, there was limited technology to sort of automate or extract human knowledge, you know, expert systems and, and so on. But today, technologies, the understanding of of natural language and so on, that machine learning itself has enabled that. That turns out to be the sort of easier problem to solve. So you take that new tool and you apply it to this harder physical problem.
0: So let's go to a hard physical problem. You and I talked about this earlier, and let's share it with people. So I was out fishing in Norway this summer, and I unfortunately didn't get very much fish, which obviously was disappointing on many levels. And I was a little surprised, I guess, of the lack of fish perhaps. But I was using sonar to at least identify different areas where people had claimed that there was various type of fish. But I wasn't, I guess, using it in a very advanced way. And we weren't trained there in the boat. So we sort of had some sensors, but we were not approaching it the right way. So then help me I, I know you work with Furuno and and there's Garmin is the other obviously player in this. So fish identification and detection through sonar technology is now a, the game, I guess in in fishery and and as it turns out, even for individuals trying to fish these days what is that all about and how can that be automated and what are the processes
1: that you you've been able to put in place there by the way that's a perfect segue into you know i I can uh, give a plug perhaps for this conference that i'm on the organizing committee of called knowledge first world and furuno is going to be presenting their work exactly sort of talking a lot about what you're talking about this is kind of coming up november It's the first conference of its kind, because this is AI, Silicon Valley, meet the physical world. You know, I think you're talking about the the fish finding technology from companies like Furuno, and and they're the world's largest market share, marine navigation, and and so on. And, And the human experts in this are actually not even the engineers that build these instruments. It's the fishermen, right? The fishermen who have been using this for a very long time, they combine it with their local knowledge, you know, warm water, cold water, time of day, and so on. And then after a while, they recognize patterns that come back on in this echogram that match you know, mackerel or tuna or sardines and so on. And Furuno wants to capture that knowledge somehow and then put that model into the fish finding machine that you and I would hold. And then, you know, instead of seeing this jumbled mess of the echogram data, we would actually see a video of fish, for example, right? It's been <laughs> transformed by this algorithm.
0: So, I mean, I do wish that we lived in a world where there was so much fish that we didn't have to do this, but uh, I'm going to join your experiment here. And, And so what you're telling me is by working with these experts who are indeed fishermen, they're not experts in sonar or they're not experts in any kind of engineering technology. Those are obviously the labelers, but they are themselves giving the first sort of solutions for how they are thinking about the ocean using these technologies. And then somehow you are turning that into... An automatable, an augmented solution, essentially, that then can find fish in the future without those fishermen somehow being involved
1: the next time around because you're building a model around it. I'll give you a concrete explanation, uh, a simplified version of how it works, you know, without talking about the more advanced techniques that are proprietary to Furuno. The conceptual approach is very, very easy to understand. Uh, I'll talk about it from the machine learning perspective. Let's say if I did have a million echograms, and each echogram, each of these things, even a hundred thousand, is well labeled, right? Somebody has painstakingly gone through the task of saying, okay, I'm going to circle this and that is fish, and that is, uh, you know, algae, and that's sand, and that's bubble, uh, and by the way, is a fish. This is macro, and so on. If somebody has gone through the trouble of doing that, then I can, you know, from a machine learning point of view, just run an algorithm and, and train it, and then it'll work for that particular region, right? <laughs> For that particular time, okay, well, we need to go collect more data, one for you know, Japan, the North coast, and, and one for Southwest and so on. So that's kind of a lot of work to collect essentially what these pixel data is, right? this raw data. When you present it to an experienced fisherman, he or she would say, well, you see these bubbles here, these this circles here, right? With the squiggly line. So they're describing it in terms of human concepts, right? And then if you sit with them for a day or two, you, you begin to pick up these things. You don't need 100,000 pixel images. You need these conceptual descriptions.
0: So you're using the most advanced AI there is, which is the human being, and you're using them working with these sonar-type technologies, and you're, you're able to extract very, very advanced right. models
1: from it. The key technology punchline here is if you have a model that understands the word circle, and squiggly line which we didn't before but more recently we begin to have models you know there's these advances called large language models you may have heard of gpt3 and and dolly and so on you know, some amazing demonstrations out coming out of open ai and google that in a very simplified way I, I, we have models that understand the world now right they don't need raw pixels these these base models are trained from raw pixels but then these larger models They understand concepts so so then we can give directions to at at this conceptual level so that they can train other models Mm -hmm. that's sort of the 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 magic trick
0: so it's a magic trick but it is still a difficult world right the world of manufacturing because it is physical give me some other examples so you you worked with panasonic you're working with foruno in marine navigation there and fishermen's knowledge. How does this work in, in other fields like robotics or with car manufacturing or indeed with Panasonic with uh, kind of, I don't know, battery production or, or any, anything that they do with electronics?
1: Right. So that example, you mentioned a few things that we worked on, you know, robotics in manufacturing, robotics arm Sort of the manufacturing science, the consistency of battery sheets, you know, coming off the the, the Panasonic manufacturing line in Sparks, Nevada, as well as energy optimization, Westinghouse, right? You know, they, they supply into data centers and buildings and so on. And so, again, in every one of these examples, you've got human expertise, right? And, of course, this is much more prevalent in Asia because Asia is still building things. Uh, but some of that is coming back to the U S there's usually a few experts. And and by the way, this is not about thousands of manufacturing, you know, line personnel. This is about three or four experts that are available in the entire company. And, and they would be able to give heuristics. They would be able to describe at the conceptual level, how something, how they make their decisions. And if you have the technology to capture that in a very efficient way, right. Again, coming back to the idea that if you make them do the work, or if you automate their work, but in a very painstaking way, like thousands of different rules, that's not a good pro- proposition. But if you have some way to sort of automate the automation, right? Automate the, the capturing of that knowledge, you've got something uh, that can bridge this physical digital divide.
0: In the new book from Wiley, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, serial startup founder Dr. Natan Linder and futurist podcaster Dr. Trond Arn-Euntheim deliver an urgent and incisive exploration of when, how, and why to augment your workforce with technology and how to do it in a way that scales, maintains innovation, and allows the organization to thrive. The key thing is to prioritize humans over machines. Here's what Klaus Schwab, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, says about the book. Augmented Lean is an important puzzle piece in the fourth industrial revolution. Find out more on www.augmentedlean.com and pick up the book in a bookstore near you. How stable is that kind of model knowledge? Because I'm just thinking about in the long run here, are these physical domain experts that are giving up a little bit of their superpower, are they still needed then in a future scenario that when you do have such a model or will it never be as advanced as they are? Or is it actually going to be still kind of a an interface that's going to jump between machines and human knowledge kind of in a continuous loop here?
1: Yeah. In the near term, it turns out we're not working on replacing experts as much as scaling experts, right? Almost every case we've worked on, companies are in trouble largely because the experts are, are you know, very, very few and far between and, and they're retiring, you know, they're, they're leaving. That needs to be scaled somehow. Uh, in the case of, for example, the coaching industry, and all of Japan servicing the supermarkets, you know there there's the 711 the family mart and so on there are three experts who can read you know the, the sensor data and infer you know what's likely to fail in the in the next uh, month so in the near term it's really we need these humans and we need more of them
0: I'm glad to hear that. Even that is a bit of a contrarian message, right? So you're saying physical infrastructure and the physical world matters. You're saying humans matter.
1: <laughs> it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's that's contrarian in Silicon Valley. I'll tell you that. It is. And in fact, related to that problem, like Husman, which is a refrigeration company that commercial refrigeration supplies to supermarkets in the U.S., a subsidiary of Panasonic, has a really hard time getting enough service personnel. And, and they have to set up their own universities, if you will, to, to, to train. And these are jobs that pay very well, but you know everybody wants to be in software these days. Coming back to the, to the human element, I think long-term, I'm an optimist, not a blind optimist, but a, a rational one. I think we're still gonna need humans to direct machines. The machine learning stuff is data that reflects the past. So patterns of the past, and you try to project that in the future. But we're always trying to effect some change to the status quo, right? Tomorrow should be a different, better day than than today. So it's that human intent that is still, at at least at present, lacking in in machines. And so we need humans to direct that.
0: So what is the tomorrow of manufacturing then? How fast are we going to get there? Because you're saying, well, Silicon Valley has a bit of a learning journey, but there is language model technology uh, or, you know, progress in la- language models that now can be implemented in software and through humans can be useful in manufacturing already today. And there's scattered examples, and you're putting on an event to show this. What is the path forward here, and, and how long is this process? And, and will it be an exponential kind of situation here where you can truly integrate you know, amazing levels of human insight into these machine models, or will it take a while of tinkering before you're gonna make any breakthroughs. Because, I mean, one thing is the breakthrough in understanding human language, but what you're saying here is, you know, even if you're working only with a few experts, you have to take domain by domain, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. and build these models, you know, like you said, painstakingly with each expert in each domain. And then, yes, you can put that picture together but the question is, how complex of a picture is it that you need to put together? And well, you know, is it like mapping the DNA or is it a bigger or what kind of a process are we looking at here?
1: Yeah. If we look at it from the dimension of, say, knowledge-based automation, right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, it is a continuation. I believe everything is like an S-curve. So there's acceleration and then there's maturity and so on. But you, if you look back in the past, which is sort of instructive for the future, we have always had human knowledge-based automation, right? I remember the first SMT, the, the, the surface mount technology, SMT wave soldering machine that right back in the early 90s, that that was a company that, that I helped co-found. You know, it was about programming the positioning of these chips that would just come down onto the solder wave, right? And that, that was human knowledge saying move it a half a millimeter here and half a millimeter there. But of course, the instructions there are very micro and very specific. What machine learning is doing I, I don't mean to to sort of bash machine learning too much I'm just saying so culturally there's this new tool really that has come along, and we just need to apply the tool the right way. Machine learning itself is contributing to the what I described earlier that is now finally machines can sort of understand us at the conceptual level that they don't have to be so so dumb as to say move a millimeter here you know if you give them the wrong instruction they'll do exactly that but we can communicate with them in terms of circles and lines and so on. So the way I see it is that it's still, it's, it's a continuous line, but what we are able to automate, what we're able to ask our machines to do is accelerating, right? In terms of their understanding of these instructions. So if you can imagine what would happen when this becomes, uh, let's say ubiquitous, right? The ability to do this. And I, and I see this happening over the next, certainly. The base technology is already there. And the application always takes about a decade.
0: Well, the application takes a decade, but you told me earlier that humans should at least have this key role in kind of this knowledge-first application approach for until 2100, you said, just to throw out a a number out there. That's, you know, to some people, really far away. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what are you saying comes after that? I know you threw that number out, but, you know, if you are going to make a distinction between a laborious process of kind of painful progress that does progress, you know, in, in each individual sort of context that you have applied a human and labeled it and, and sort of understood a, a little case. What are we looking at, whether it is 2100, 2075 or 2025? Or, or what will happen at that moment, and and is it really a moment that you're talking about when machines suddenly will sort of grasp something very very generic? So the the good old you know moment of singularity, or are you talking about something different?
1: Yeah, I I, I certainly don't think it's a moment, right? And again, you know, the HP 11C has always calculated pi fast, you know, far faster and with more digits than I have. So in, in that sense, it's, it's in that particular narrow sense, it's always been more intelligent than I am.
0: Yeah, well, no one was questioning whether a calculator could do better calculations well, than a human uh, for a long time. Uh, right? Hang on,
1: there, there's, there's, there's something more profound to think about, right? Because we keep saying, well, the minute we do something, it's okay, well, that's not intelligence. But what I'm getting to is the word that I would refer to is, is hyper evolution. So there's not a replacement of human by machines, right? There's always been augmentation. And intelligence is not going to be different. It is a little disturbing to think about for some of us, for a lot of us, right? But it's not any different from, you know, wearing my glasses or I was sort of walk, taking a walk earlier this morning, listening to your podcast. And I was thinking how a pair of shoes, right, as as an augmented device would seem very, very strange to humans living, say, 500 years ago, the the pair of shoes that I was walking. So so I think in terms of augmenting human intelligence, you know, there are companies that are working on kind of you know, plugging in to the degree that that seems natural or disturbing. It is inevitable.
0: Well, I mean, if you just think about the internet, which uh, nowadays is like become a trope to think about the internet. I mean, I don't know if people think about the internet as a revolutionary technology, which which it of course is and and has been. But it is changing. Mm-hmm. But you, whether you think about shoes or the steam engine or nuclear power or whatever it is, right? The moment it's introduced, and people think they understand it, which most people don't, and uh, few of us do. It seems trivial because it's there. That's right. But your point is until it's there it's not trivial at all and so the process that you've been describing it might sound trivial or it might sound complex but the moment it's kind of solved or apparently solved to people we all assume that was easy right so there's something kind of unfair about how knowledge progresses i guess
1: that's right that's right we always think yeah, this thing that that you describe or i describe is very very strange and then it happens and then we say of course Right. That's not that interesting. Tell me about the future.
0: Well, I guess the same thing has happened to cell phones. You're like, you know, they were kind of a strange thing that some people were using. It's like, okay, well, how useful is it to talk to people, you know, without uh, sitting by your desk or in the corner of your house?
1: I only remember when we were saying, why the hell would I want to be disturbed every moment of the day? Right? Right, Right. I don't want the phone with me. Right, but then we
0: went through the last decade or so where we were saying, I can't believe my life before the phone. And then maybe now, the last two, three years, I would say a lot of people I talk to or even my kids, they're like, you know, what's the big deal here? (laughs) It's just a smartphone, you know,
1: because they live with the smartphone. And they've always said, hey, how do you get around without, you know, Google Maps? And then somebody says, we use Maps. And I said, before Google Maps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the future here, you know, is
0: an elusive concept, but I just wanna challenge you one more time then on, on manufacturing because manufacturing for now, right, is a highly physical exercise. And of course there's virtual manufacturing as well, and, and it builds on a lot of these techniques and, and machine learning and other things. How do you see manufacturing as, a, as an industry evolve? Is, is it, like you said, for 75 years, it's gonna be largely very recognizable Is it going to look the same? Is it going to feel the same? Is the the management structure, is the way engineers are approaching it and the way workers are are working, are we going to recognize all these things or is it going to be a little bit like the cell phone? We're like, well, of course it's different, but it's not that different. And, you know, it's not really a
1: a big deal to most people.
0: Do you say five years or 50 years? Uh, Well, I mean, you give me the time frame. Well, Well, in five
1: years we will definitely recognize it, but in 50 years we will not.
0: In 50 years... It's going to be completely different. Look different, feel different. Factories, it's,
1: it's all going to be different. Right, right. I mean, the, the, the cliche is that we always overestimate what happens in five and underestimate what happens in 50, right? But uh, the, the trend, though, is there's this recurrent bundling and unbundling of industries, right? It's, it's a cycle. Some people think it's just, you know, they, they live 10 years and they say it's a trend, but it actually goes back and forth, right? But the, there's sort of increasing specialization of expertise so for example the supply chain over the last 30 years and, and so we got in trouble because of that right because has become so discreet uh if you want to use one friendly word but you can also say fragmented in another word like everybody's in focus on just one that one specialization and then covid something like covid happens and oh my god that was all built very precisely for a particular way of living and nobody's in the office anymore and we live at home and that disrupts the, the supply chain You know, I think if you project 50 years out, we we will learn to essentially matrix the whole industry, right? You talked about management of these things, right? The the whole supply chain from branding all the way down to raw materials. You know, is it better to be completely vertically integrated or is it to be part of this this whole mesh network? I think the future is going to be far more distributed, right? But there will be fits and starts.
0: So then my last question is, let's say I buy into that. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. The future is distributed or decentralized, whatever that means. Does that lessen or make globalization even more important? And like global standardization, I guess, across all geographical territories. I'm, I'm just trying to bring us back to where you started, which was, you know, in the US, Silicon Valley optimized for software and started thinking that software was eating the world. But then by outsourcing all of the manufacturing to Asia, it forgot some essential learning, which is that when manufacturing evolves, the next wave looks slightly different. And in order to learn that, you actually need to do it. Mm-hmm. So does that lesson tell you anything about how the next wave of matrix or decentralization is going to occur? Is it going to be so one thought would be that it is physically distributed, but a lot of the insights are still shared. so in other words, you still need global insight sharing, and all of that's happening if you don't have that, you're going to have pockets. they might be very decentralized and could even be super advanced, but they're not going to be the same and they're going to be different, and, and there're going to be different sort of paths and trajectories in different parts of the world mm-hmm. well how, how do you see this? Do you think that our technology paradigms are necessarily converging along the path of uh, some sort of global master technology and manufacturing? Or are we looking at scattered different pictures that are all decentralized, but yet, you know, I don't know, from a bird's eye view, kind of look like a matrix?
1: I think your question is broader than just manufacturing, although manufacturing is a, is a significant example of that, right? It's maybe a key example and
0: certainly undercommunicated. communicated. And, you know, on this podcast, we want to emphasize manufacturing, but you're right.
1: Yes. Yeah, the word globalization is very loaded, right? There's the positive, you know, supposedly positive effect in the long run, right? But who is it that said, you know, is it with keyness? Is it in the long run, we're all dead? <laughs> In the short run, the dislocations are very real, right like you know a skill set of a single human being can't just shift from hardware to software from manufacturing to a i in you know within a few months but if I think your question is you know let's let's take it seriously on on a scale of say decades right I think about it in terms of value creation there will always be some kind of disparity right nature does not like uniformity uniformity is is coldness is death right there has to be some gradients. You got to, you're got you very good at something, I'm very good at something else. And that happens at the scale of cities and nations as well.
0: And that's what triggers trade too, right? Because exactly. if we weren't different, uh, then there would be no incentive to trade.
1: Right. So when we think about, say, manufacturing coming back to the US, and we could use the word, it is correct in one sense, but it's incorrect in another sense. We're not going back to manufacturing that I did. We're not going back to surface mount technology, right? In other words, the value creation. It, we, we follow the trajectory of manufacturing alone and try to learn that history. What happens is that manufacturing has gotten better and better. Before we were outsourcing the cheap stuff, right? We don't want to do that, but then that cheap stuff, you know, people over there they build automation and skills and so on, and so so that becomes actually advanced technology. So, in the sense, what we're really doing is we're sort of we're we're, we're saying, hey, let's go advanced at this layer. I think it's going to be that give and take of where value creation takes place. Of course, layered with geopolitical issues and so on.
0: I guess I'm just uh, throwing in there the wedge that you don't really know beforehand, and and maybe th- it was Keynes actually, the economist, that said that the only thing that matters is the is the short term, you know, because we're you know in the end we, we're all dead uh, eventually. But the point is, you don't really know, right? Ultimately, what China learned from manufacturing pretty pedestrian stuff turned out to be really fundamental in the second wave. So I'm just wondering, is it possible to preempt that? Because, you know, you say, oh, the U.S. is just going to manufacture advanced things. And then you pick a few things and you start manufacturing them. But if you're missing part of the production process, what if that was the real advancement? I guess that is what happened.
1: Okay. So when I say that, I think about the example of my friend who spent, you know, uh, again, we were a PhD group at, at Stanford together. And, you know, whereas I go, went off to academia and do startups and so on, he stayed at Intel for like 32 years. Mm-hmm. He's one of the world's foremost experts in in semiconductor process optimization. Right. So that's another example where human expertise, even though semiconductor you know, manufacturing is highly automated. You still need these experts to actually optimize these things. Uh, he's gone off to TSMC, right? After three decades of being very happy at, at, at one place. So what I'm getting to is it is actually knowable. What is the secret recipes, you know, where the choke points are, right? What matters and so on. And interestingly, it does reside in, in, in the human brain, right? But... It, you know when i say manufacturing coming back to the us and do advanced manufacturing we are we are picking and choosing right we're doing batteries manufacturing we're doing semiconductor right and and we're not doing wave soldering so it, it, i think it is possible to also see this trend that anybody who's done something and sort of going through four or five iterations of that for for a long time will become the world's expert at it uh, I think that is inevitable you, you talk about construction, for example, interestingly there 's a company in Malaysia that is sort of going uh, called Renong, that is sort of going throughout east southeast Asia. They are the construction company of, of that region because they 've been doing it for you know for for so long. I think that is very, very predictable, but it does require the express investment in that direction and and that 's something that Asia has done pretty well.
0: Well, these are fascinating things. We're not going to solve them all on this podcast, but you definitely becoming an expert in something, uh, is important, whether you're an individual or a company or a country for sure. What that means keeps changing. So just uh, stay alert and stay in touch with both uh, AI and humans, I guess. It's, uh, and, and manufacturing to, to boot. It's a, uh, it's a mix of those three, I guess, in, in, in our conversation. That's the secret to unlocking parts of the future. Thank you, Christopher, for enlightening us on these matters. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. You have
0: just listened to another episode of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was human-first AI. Our guest was Christopher Wen, CEO and co-founder of Adomatic. In this conversation, we talked about the why and the how of human-first AI, because it seems that digital AI is one thing, but physical AI is a whole another ballgame. My takeaway is that physical AI – is much more interesting of a challenge than pure digital AI. Imagine making true improvements to the way workers accomplish their work, helping them be better, faster and more accurate. This is the way technology is supposed to work, augmenting humans, not replacing them. In manufacturing, we need all the human workers we can find. As for what happens after the year 2100, I agree that we may have to model what that looks like. But AIs might be even more deeply embedded in the process, that's for sure. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at AugmentedPodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 80, The Augmenting Power of Operational Data, with Tulip CTO Ronnie Kubot as our guest. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so... Do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with TULIP, the frontline operation platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. TULIP is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. TULIP is also hiring. You can find TULIP at TULIP.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about our industry and especially about how industrial tech is going. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter, and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and on YouTube. Augmented, industrial
1: conversations that matter. See you next time.